The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Practical Spirituality Positive Messages This is Unity Online Radio The Voice of an Awakening World better get healthy and help animals welcome to main street vegan with your host victoria moran i have had a very adventurous life i was on oprah twice i've been to tibet paul mccartney bought me a drink but the biggest adventure hands down, was having the incredible privilege of raising my daughter, Adair, a remarkable human being and a lifelong vegan. And I'll bet every parent would concur with that. And that is why I am so excited about today's program, because we are going to be talking about the definitive book to raising healthy plant-based kids. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, your host for the Main Street Vegan Program. And it is past due (laughs) that I should be introducing two amazing authors and healthcare professionals who have written the book that parents have waited for. Well, gosh, (laughs) I could have used it over 30 years ago. So without further ado, let me tell you who these two remarkable women are with whom we're going to be speaking today. The first is Dr. Rejma Shah. She is both a medical doctor, a pediatrician, and a master of public health, a board-certified pediatrician, affiliate clinical instructor at Stanford University School of Medicine. She has additional training and certification in plant-based nutrition and cooking and is the author, co-author of Nourish, the Definitive Plant-Based Nutrition Guide for Families. And with her is someone that we've had on several times before, a real favorite of Main Street Vegan and, gosh, a favorite of everybody who gets to know her, and that is Brenda Davis, registered dietitian. She's a leader in her field and an internationally acclaimed speaker. She's co-authored 12 books with nearly a million copies in print in 14 languages. And of course, her latest now with uh, Dr. Shaw is Nourish. So welcome, uh, both of you. It's such a pleasure to be speaking with you today on this really important topic. Well, thanks for having us. You are so much for having us. Well, thank you for writing this book. And I think people are going to be thanking you for that for for decades to come. So let's start with you, Dr. Shaw, since we haven't met before. Uh, Why did you guys get together and write this beautiful book? Well, it's been a true honor and a privilege to be working with Brenda on this book. Um, We actually met many, many years ago at a plant-based nutrition conference. Um, As it would happen, we were sitting next to one another on our flight down to Southern California to attend one of these plant-based nutrition conferences. And I think we just ended up chit-chatting the whole flight down and just, you know, formed a friendship. And then the following year, uh, at the end of the conference, we sort of decided that we wanted to collaborate on a book. And um, it's been just such a joy and pleasure to write the book with Brenda. You already know her, so I don't have to convince you of how wonderful she is. 
Uh-oh. No, that I, that takes no convincing. So, Dr. Shaw, just give us a little bit of your your history. I mean, have you always been vegetarian, or do you have an etiology of your plant based status to share? Yeah, so I think I have a little bit of an interesting journey. I think a lot of people in the plant based community can relate to stories of either having, you know, grown up largely with animal products and even some of the pioneers and experts, you know, grew up on dairy farms and had to do, had a lot of undoing to do as they got older. For me, it was actually quite the opposite. I grew up in a fairly traditional Indian household. And like many Indian families, we actually ate a vegetarian diet. You know, at the time we didn't call it, but it was essentially a plant-based diet. And for me, it's when I got older, um, especially during the teen years and medical school and college, that I started eating sort of more of the standard American diet. So I kind of knew all of this growing up, um, sort of straight from the path. And then it's really as I started having children of my own and thinking more about how I wanted to feed them, that I sort of came back to a plant-based diet and um, you know, now an entirely vegan diet. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard this from many healthcare professionals. We don't really learn much about nutrition. And so a lot of this exploration happened, uh, on my own and in being inspired to feed my own kids, I sort of started to talk to patients and families a little bit differently about food. And I love that you said that you had your own kids because certainly that's not a requirement to be an expert on childhood nutrition, but kids are interesting little creatures. And I think it it gives a little bit more street cred, if you will, uh, (laughs) that you're a mom. How old are your kids? So my kids are actually uh, 15 and a half, almost 16 and 18. So they're Ah. a bit older and, you know, we've definitely... I can relate a lot to parents that struggle around the dinner table because we've ha- I've had the same issues in terms of dealing with picky eaters or even how to make changes in the family. Um, it's one thing to sort of read it in a book, but it's another thing altogether to put it into practice. So were your kids uh, verbal when you decided to make the switch? You know, they were pretty accommodating. I think I have one child who to be perfectly honest, she was vegetarian long before any of the family was. And I think, you know, animal foods just were not that appealing to her. So my daughter didn't take much convincing at all. I think she was like, thank goodness. Now we can all kind of eat the same thing. My son, who's younger, was a little bit more, I would say he's more the selective eater in our family. And I, he definitely taught me a lot of patience and he taught me, you know, a lot of persistence. One of the most interesting things happened that happened for us was I mentioned, I think you mentioned in the introduction that I have additional training in plant-based cooking. And when I was sort of beginning this process, I took Ruby's, um, six month long plant-based professional cooking course. And it ended up being a wonderful way for my kids to sort of explore this way of eating because I had a lot of homework. You know, we had to prepare the recipes and then take pictures and then we got graded on our, you know, our products. And so they were my critics at home and they felt very keen to sort of, you know, give me some constructive criticism, but it also opened the door for them to try a lot of things that they may not have done initially. So I think my children have definitely taught me a lot of patience And they've also taught me that one of the best ways to sort of persuade people or to bring people along the journey is to really just offer them delicious, amazing food. It makes a huge difference. So Brenda, on to you. I think that most of my listeners know you as a dietitian and as a vegan. Uh, I think Brenda's been on four or five times. So do check out the archives and you can hear the great story of how a hunter made her vegetarian (laughs) (laughs) But talk to me about kids and and this particular topic. Why is this important to you? Well, my kids are now 35 and 33. My son just turned 33. My daughter will be 34 or 36 next month. And so it's been a while, but my daughter actually has two little ones now, four and a one-year-old. And, uh, and so it's, uh, it's pretty fun, uh, I, remembering all of the things that I went through with my own children and now how she's doing things with her children. And so I've, I've been through it all. I did the, you know, the extended nursing and, and had all of the, the trials and tribulations of feeding children. To be really honest, I, I have to say my kids were not very fussy eaters. I didn't have picky eaters. They loved food. They would eat just about anything, and they were quite thrilled with broccoli and spinach, and it didn't matter to them. They just they just enjoyed all of the food. I was very fortunate. 
Yeah, you were. And I love that that phrase that uh, Dr. Shah used, uh, selective eater, because, yeah, my daughter was one of those. I was so worried about her at one point that I, I went to a, a dietitian with the five foods that she would eat. And they were very odd. I don't remember them specifically, but one was tofu, one was sweet potatoes, it was avocado, seaweed, and and some kind of fruit. I think it was mangoes. And, you know, and the dietitian looked at this bizarre list and she said, you know, actually, as long as the tofu is is calcium, uh, you know, coagulated so that she's getting some calcium, this is not all that bad. Maybe if you would li- lighten up, she would eat more. And she did. So we, we've lived happily ever after. And she is now working as a stunt performer and aerialist. Wow. So, <laughs> so that's... Uh, that story. So why nowadays, I mean, this is just going at such a steady clip. I mean, vegan is such a deal in the world. So what are the main reasons that you see that parents are choosing to raise their kids on plant-based diets? Either one of you jump in. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the, it's a diet that really offers so many different advantages and addresses so many of the global issues that we're facing. I think many people are definitely drawn to vegan and plant-based diets because of the reduced risk of disease for a lot of the chronic illnesses that we see, not only in the United States, but increasingly throughout the world from heart disease and diabetes and certain types of cancer. And as parents, you know, we're beginning, as a pediatrician, we're beginning to see some of these conditions even develop in childhood. So we see kids with hypertension and, you know, I, I say this all the time that we used to, when I was training initially way, way a long time ago, we did not call it, um, type two diabetes. We used to call it adult onset diabetes and we now call it, um, type two diabetes because we do see it in children. And so I think parents are definitely compelled by the health advantages that a plant-based diet can offer. And then when you look at all that's going on in the world, knowing that we can leave our children a better planet, uh, a more inhabitable earth by switching more to plant-based foods um, certainly has an enormous impact. And then I think, interestingly, I've seen a lot of children be the reason for the family exploring more plant-based options. I think, you know, children grow up, um, they, they start out being quite empathetic. And oftentimes they're the ones that don't want to eat animal foods for obvious reasons, right? They, they connect it to the animals. And so um, as a way to sort of express compassion in a real tangible way through the choices that they make around food. So I think, you know, we often talk about the health, environmental and ethical issues. And I think it's it's very true for families. And when you consider that no other dietary approach really addresses all of those key aspects, it's clear why parents are more interested. I should say, but you said something that really caught me up short because I didn't know it. I'm well aware that children now have type 2 diabetes, but I hadn't heard about hypertension. Is this widespread? And and would you say that it's more dietary or stress-related? So uh, I wouldn't say it's widespread, but we do see it. And it used to be that when children developed hypertension, we used to always look for a reason. So in hypertension in childhood, we would look for things like renal problems or other things that could create hypertension. Um, and what we're seeing is that, is that in older children, especially for children that are overweight or obese, um, we're seeing more and more that it's essential hypertension or hypertension that's li- related to a lot of these lifestyle-related things and family history. So it's not widespread, like it's a very common thing, but we absolutely do see it. Um, it's not rare. Wow. Well, that is, um, that's new information for me and I'll put it over in the information. I wish I didn't have to have category. And added to that, I would say even elevated cholesterol we're seeing too in children. Amazing, but reversible as we know at, at any age. So I think the main thing that parents worry about and, and the one thing that we still get flack for in the vegan world, I think most of us, you know, okay, I'm a vegan. Oh, isn't that interesting? And, and that, sometimes people will say, oh, well, you know, you must be really healthy. But if you say, I'm raising vegan children, then, you know, you get some raised eyebrows. So Brenda, safety, adequacy, are we okay mm-hmm. doing this? Well, you know, uh, 
well, I guess 35 or 40 years ago when I was uh, uh, in university, we were really told that vegetarian diets were really quite risky for children and vegan diets were downright dangerous, period. Uh, fortunately, <laughs> there have been a number of studies since then that have followed vegan children or uh, for, for a significant amount of time, even one study that followed vegan children until they were adults and confirmed that indeed uh, parents could raise uh, children on completely plant-based diets and they would grow uh, to normal heights and have normal intelligence and all of those things. And so now we have very reasonable evidence that that parents can do this uh, and and that it, it it can actually provide some advantages long term and we see um, you know plant-based children tend to eat more fruits and vegetables they tend to eat fewer uh, salty fried snack foods uh, they they tend to eat more fiber uh, which is you know low in uh, the diets of a lot of children uh, they tend to consume uh, higher amounts of specific nutrients uh, like carotenoids and vitamin C and vitamin K and 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 even uh, certain minerals like potassium and magnesium. And so there are definitely some advantage advantages that are associated with uh, plant-based diets for children. Oh, that's good to know. And how do we talk about this if we are parents, grandparents, people raising children, people who care about children with that pediatrician who is not as enlightened as you are, Dr. Shaw? Yeah. And, I, you know, in the book, we have a whole section about how to have these sorts of conversations. And I think the first thing to remember is that whether it's grandma or your pediatrician, I think everyone is very well-intentioned because they want the same thing that the parents do. They want children to grow and be well. So understanding that, you know, at the core of what they're expressing is likely concern. The second thing is, I think, especially when you're talking with your pediatrician, it's important to maybe have specific conversation about the nutrients that they're concerned about. So is it the protein? Is it the calcium? Um, is it the vitamin D? Whatever the case may be. And then to sort of have a conversation about how you might have a reasonable plant-based option. I think in an in a situation where you're really just butting heads and you're having really a lot of difficulty, it can be helpful to meet with a dietitian who is comfortable supporting people, supporting parents who want to follow a plant-based diet. And one of the things that I always say is you don't necessarily need a pediatrician that's plant-based or vegan. You just need a pediatrician that you can engage in a reasonable conversation that you feel addresses your concerns and that is open to conversation. And if you've had an experience with your pediatrician that they've been responsive around other issues, you can have hope that you can you know, have a reasonable conversation, address the specific issues, and be open to getting more resources and additional support if you need it. So since we have one of those fabulous dietitians right here, let's talk about those two macronutrients, or I guess one's a micronutrient uh, that you brought up, um, the protein without meat and the calcium without milk. Right. Well, you know, it's it's quite shocking. A lot of parents don't realize how little protein uh, children actually need. It's not very much. When they're babies, it's about 11 uh, grams and and then goes up to 13. And even if we add, uh, some experts will suggest adding, you know, 15, 20% or slightly more for children who are on high fiber plant-based diets. Uh, it's still really easy to achieve those numbers. So for example, if your child is consuming two servings of fortified soy milk a day, they're getting 16 grams right there and they've eaten nothing else, you know? So it's it's actually not, not that difficult. The big key is to make sure you're including a variety of the more protein-rich foods, whether that be, you know, all the different legumes, tofu, tempeh, uh, you know, lentil soup, uh, all of these um, uh, legume-based foods, even pea soup, uh, will help to, to get those numbers where they need to be. And and then the other foods, a lot of seeds are fairly rich in, in protein. So things like 
pumpkin seeds and hemp seeds can make uh, very significant contributions. But but there's protein in just about pretty much everything, unless it's pure sugar or pure oil. Um, so even fruits and ve or vegetables and grains can be fairly significant sources. So the numbers add up. And if a child is getting enough protein and eating a variety of plant, or I'm sorry, if a child is getting enough calories and eating a variety of plant foods, protein is generally not an issue. And, and then the second nutrient, calcium, is more of a challenge. And so we do see lower intakes in children who are eating 100% uh, plant-based or dairy-free diets. And in those children, what I recommend, because if you look at uh, calcium requirements for a, a one to three-year-old, it's about 700 milligrams. For a four to eight-year-old, it's about the same as an adult, uh, about 1,000 milligrams. That's a lot of calcium to get from whole plant foods. So the easiest way to actually uh, meet those recommended uh, intakes is to is to add in some uh, calcium-fortified or uh, you know, calcium-fortified non-dairy milks make a lot of sense because you're getting three to 450 milligrams per cup. So you have two cups and you're there. Uh, and, and then the other things are things like uh, tofu that's been precipitated with calcium. And, uh, and when you, you know, include a couple of servings of these really calcium-added foods, it makes meeting the RDA very, very simple. It, it does seem much simpler than when we were doing it in the 80s. Yes. <laughs> some of these things sure. hadn't hadn't been uh, invented yet, or if they were, they were they were hard to get. So I just want to remind everybody of, of the name of the book because this is an important book. This is important if you have kids, if you have grandchildren, if you have friends who have kids. And it is Nourish, beautiful, beautiful title, Nourish, the Definitive Plant-Based Nutrition Guide for Families. There's a website, nourishthebook.com. So do, do check it out. And also, you have a wonderful foreword from one of my favorite people, Dr. David Katz. I just think this man is so measured and and so wise why did you decide to team up with him oh for those very reasons he's measured and he's wise uh, those are very very good uh, uh descriptives for for david katz he's so balanced in his thinking he's absolutely brilliant and he is an incredible writer and we couldn't really think of anyone um that that would have been a more appropriate a forward author. So we were absolutely thrilled beyond belief when he agreed to do that for us. Well, you guys are quite uh, the dynamic trio <laughs> to help people get their kids just happy and healthy and helping the kids to be part of this upward progression of what we need to do for the planet going forward. You know, the kids really want to save the planet. And this is a way that um, we can all help them do that. So everybody stay with us through this break that's coming up and these lovely announcements. And we're going to be back and get more of the skinny on raising kids who aren't skinny and aren't chubby or just right. Like baby bears porridge. We'll be back. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. 
Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. What a pleasure to have you with us today. If you're new to the world of Main Street Vegan, do check out the website at MainStreetVegan.net. We've got all sorts of cool things going on there. That is the home base for Main Street Vegan Academy, where vegans can train to be certified vegan lifestyle coaches and educators. And now we're doing that on Zoom, like everything else in life. And I also want to give a shout out to our wonderful sponsor that I haven't mentioned in several weeks. There's been so much to talk about, but they are Compliment, or it is Compliment, some really wonderful supplements made by vegans for vegans. Uh, Dr. Joel Kahn is part of that, and uh, Matt Frazier, the meat-free no meat athlete uh, and uh, dietitian uh, Pamela Ferguson, um, PhD. And Compliment Plus is what I take to be sure that I'm getting my B12 and fully formed omega 3 fatty acids and vitamin K2 and all the other stuff that I just might need. And if that sounds like something you're interested in looking into, do check it out, lovecompliment.com. And if you use the discount code MainStreetVeganPlus, that's a plus sign, um, you can save some money if you decide to place an order. So now let us turn again to our wonderful guests, Reshma Shah, MD, Brenda Davis, RD, co-authors of Nourish, the definitive plant-based nutrition guide for families. So we know how good it is for kids to be plant-based and everybody else too, but are there some drawbacks? Are there any nutrients or any things parents need to watch out for? Uh, do you want me to take that, Reshma? Okay, so um, yes, of course. Uh, whenever you're doing a plant-based diet, uh, there are a number of nutrients that you need to consider. And the, 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 probably the two that, that come up most often are vitamin B12 and vitamin D. Uh, another that, that can be an issue is iodine. And, and then for all children, uh, iron is a big issue uh, during infancy and especially during the infant and toddler years. So those are all nutrients that, that you just, you know, it's, it's so interesting uh, when you think about, um, you know, omnivores. They're all of these nutrition education resources that we have for the public are directed towards omnivores. And there aren't so many directed towards plant-based eaters. And really, that's why we wrote the book. We felt that there was a, you know, a void in the literature, but it, it, it we, we really need to take it upon ourselves as parents to ensure that, that we understand what the potential uh, shortfalls might be. And so B12 is, is a pretty easy one to deal with. You don't have to worry about it too much while you're breastfeeding in that first year of life, if you as a breastfeeding mom are getting enough in your diet. Um, but as soon as the breastfeeding starts to wane, then you need to think about where it's going to come from for your child. And so it can be fortified foods or it can be, uh, you know, supplements. And um, and of course, we outline exactly what you need in, in Nourish. Um, but you do you generally the easiest thing is to provide, um, you know, either a multivite with B12 or a, a supplement a couple of times a week, in addition to whatever fortified foods might be consumed. And then with vitamin D, all infants need uh, vitamin D. They need 400 IUs. Um, every day for the first year of life and and after that they need 600 and and so that can come from you know both fortified foods and and supplements uh, it, of course it can come from sunshine vitamin d can but a lot of people don't get sufficient sunshine to make all the vitamin d they need 
uh, iodine can be an issue because a lot of people, their main sources of iodine are fish and, and dairy products. Uh, and, and of course, those are eliminated in a completely plant-based diet. The other big source, of course, is iodized salt. But a lot of vegans sort of, you know, go for the natural sea salts and so forth. And so there's not a necessarily a really good source of iodine unless you're using some seaweed. And seaweed, you have to be very cautious of because some seaweed is so concentrated that you could exceed the upper limit very, very easily. And, and the, you know, the recommendations for children uh, for iodine are not that much different than they are for adults. So that's another nutrient to really consider. And then the other nutrients like iron and zinc and, uh, are, are really, if you get the legumes in the diet, that, that tends to be taken care of fairly, fairly readily. Although for infants, we do need to, to be um, possibly adding in iron between, if you're breastfeeding between four and six months, usually we'll suggest a milligram per kilogram body weight until enough is consumed from solid foods. So just listening to that, I'm thinking if I were a young mom and maybe hadn't been vegan very long myself, it just seems daunting. But in the book, you lay it all out so easily, like, okay, this is iodine. This is what I need to know. Check. I've got that one. This is B12. This is what I need. Got it. And so that's why I just can't stress enough how important this book is for anybody that has any responsibility at all for the health of children. Because, you know, it, it can sound complicated even when you're talking to the most uh, intelligent and knowledgeable people. But when you've really got it down there, the way you guys do it in the book, it just all seems very, very doable. Did you have anything to add to that? Yeah. The other thing, I, I mean, I, I can completely relate to this idea that it seems overwhelming. Like if there are all these nutrients I have to be concerned about, like how am I going to be able to manage this with my busy active family? The other thing I always like to remind people is that even for omnivorous children, vitamin D is something that they need to get. I can't tell you as a pediatrician how many children I've treated for rickets because of vitamin D deficiency. All children need vitamin D, even you know ones that are following an omnivorous diet. So vitamin D and iron also. I've seen lots and lots of kids with iron deficiency that weren't plant-based or vegan. So I think, yes, we do have to be concerned about specific nutrients, but we need to be concerned about nutrients for all children, regardless of the diet that they follow. And the reason that we sort of laid things out in Nourish is to give parents the confidence to know that they can do it um, with ease and without having to worry too much. Well, I'm just you see so many things that I would just never think about and not being a healthcare professional. I thought rickets was something from another era. Well, I practiced so. for many, many years in Cleveland and, you know, we didn't have sunshine for almost like nine months. It gets mm. very gray very quickly. So even people who are outside um, don't get a lot of adequate sun exposure because of the darkness and how cloudy it can be. So in the Northern latitudes, um, you can definitely see vitamin D deficiency. And a lot of these populations, you know, they don't necessarily drink milk when you think about how common lactose intolerance is. And vitamin D is, tends to be the biggest source of, I mean, excuse me, cow's milk tends to be the biggest source of um, vitamin D in people's diets. And a lot of people don't drink milk because of lactose intolerance and things like that. So it's actually... It's, you, I have definitely seen cases of vitamin D deficiency uh, resulting in rickets. So the amount of vitamin D that goes into the non-dairy milks, it's about comparable with what goes into the dairy milk? And is that considered yes. okay? Is, is that... Um, you know, it is very comparable. It, it, it's fortified to about the same level as is the calcium, and and uh, and so that's that that's fine. But what people need to realize is a lot of people don't consume enough non-dairy milk or dairy milk, for that matter, to meet the RDA for vitamin D. And so, for many people, even if they are consuming those foods, they're not quite hitting that target. And so. You know, one of the easy things that parents can do is just to provide a children's multivite that that includes vitamin D and vitamin B12 and vitamin, you know, iodine and, you know, all of these, uh, a little bit of zinc. And, and then it, it helps to, you know, provide a little bit of insurance where they don't feel so concerned about these trace nutrients. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, uh, this is great, and the book tells everything. So I think we can let the basic nutrients be on the side here for the rest of our time together. And let's talk about kids. And let's talk about how to make this work with kids. So, so what can parents do to help everybody's kids be more like Brenda's kids and <laughs> like the foods that are, are presented to them? Well, I think it makes a big difference if you're sort of starting this way from the beginning. Um, and I think that Brenda definitely did that part correctly. She just started her kids off this way. And so they didn't know any different. And it can be a really, really beautiful way to start. But I find that if many families are more like my own in which you're sort of making the transition somewhere in childhood and even in adolescence. So I think your approach is going to be different depending on the stage of development and age of your child. So for younger kids, I think just, you know, introducing these foods consistently with a lot of patience and, you know, modeling the behavior yourself, letting your kids see you enjoying all these foods um, is a way to get them started. If you've got older kids or kids who are used to eating sort of some of these more animal-based foods, it can require you know, some conversations and also a little bit of experimenting. And one of the things that I've realized in being a pediatrician is that every family is different. They're going to be different in terms of their resources and the challenges that they face. So it's really important to sort of know what is doable for you as a family. One of the ways that I think parents can start is by making gradual changes at home. And if the kids seem resistant or um, even a bit hostile towards some of the changes, you can introduce flexibility so that it's not overwhelming for the parents and it's not overwhelming for the children. Um, and just like one example of how you could start is to try and make that transition of being more plant-based at home. And if they're, you know, when we resume activities and start doing birthday parties and sleepovers and all these things um, to allow a little flexibility depending on what your child um, is needing. And I think through all of this, it's really important to maintain a loving connection with your child. Um, and, you know, we, we, we stay in the book, like no bite, no number of bites of broccoli or kale or anything is worth um, creating sort of a fractured relationship with your child. So it's important to really know your child, where they're at, and just move forward with a lot of patience, a lot of persistence, um, and a lot of love. Ah, that's beautiful. And you've reminded me when you were talking about, you know, of plant-based kids that um, of a conversation I overheard when my daughter was young with her two vegetarian friends. This was the 1980s Kansas City, Missouri. So it wasn't exactly a bastion of veganism at, at that time, but she did have some vegetarian friends and they were talking about the, the relative merits of different kinds of unleavened bread. And they were talking about pita and chapati and injera. And it was so cute to be a fly on the wall there and, and know that the kids next door probably like bread. You know, that's the thing that comes in the package that says wonder. And I was hearing this wonderful culinary conversation. <laughs> so we, we have a oh, lot of that awesome. oh, in the vegan yeah. world. So you were talking also, I loved what you said about the love so much more important than the, the bite of broccoli. So what can parents do to foster a healthy relationship with food? I know it's really easy to go the other way. Yeah, and so we highlight the sort of common feeding practice of the division of responsibility that was created by Ellen Satter. Um, and that sort of model of feeding really says that as parents, we are responsible for the what, the when, and the where of eating. So we'll say we're having, you know, pasta with marinara sauce and tofu nuggets and broccoli or whatever the menu is. You kind of lay everything out on the table. Um, we're having dinner at 630 at the kitchen table. And then you leave it up to the kids to sort of determine how much and whether they're eating. And it's this sort of collaborative um, experience around feeding. And Studies have shown repeatedly that when we pressure our children, when we bribe our children, or when we restrict our children, you know, even the other end, that it tends to backfire. So I think offering a variety of foods, modeling the behavior yourself, and creating a sense of structure and routine around mealtimes is a great place to start. That sounds good. And how about body image? I mean, I ask this as a kid who was obese as a child and really had to struggle with that in, into my 30s. 
So, so what do we do so that kids feel good about who they are? Yeah, and I think it's uh, it's a really tricky topic because I think over the last couple of decades, you know, we've seen so much in terms of the rise in pediatric obesity, and there's been such a focus on BMI charts. And I think that we've kind of gone in the other direction. We sort of focus so much on the BMI that we sort of lose um, the child that that BMI chart goes with. So I think focusing on behaviors and um, practices more than weight is a good place to start. You definitely don't want to allow for any kind of weight teasing or, um, uh, you know, comments about weight and body image. I think that a lot of times as parents, we don't even realize the tone and the language that we're setting forth in some of the comments that we make, either about our own bodies, other people's bodies, or things that we see in media. So trying to keep the, uh, I actually don't think you need to comment about a child's body whatsoever. Um, And then in terms of the BMI, I think it's really important to Um, leave that conversation more up to the parent and the pediatrician. I really hesitate to involve children in the conversation around BMI in terms of showing them the growth chart. Now, certainly if they're curious, if they have questions, you want to address them, but you can't really control someone's BMI or weight. You can control the foods that you offer. You can control the environment that you create around feeding um, and the enjoyment. But I think restricting kids' intake tends to backfire. Um, dieting behaviors in children are associated with uh, eating disorders in the future, and they're also associated with increased weight gain in the future. Well, I wish you were everybody's pediatrician. That's just so sane and so lovely to hear. Do you have any thoughts on that, Brenda? I, I you know, I couldn't agree more. I, I think Reshma is so balanced in her thinking on these things. And I think that as parents, um, you know, we want to make the experience of eating as joyful as possible. We want to engage our children uh, at the farmer's market, picking the food, in the garden, growing the food, uh, uh, in the kitchen, preparing the food and make it joyful. I'll never forget, you know, with my when my son was little, he loved to cook and, and so did my daughter. But he would, um, it was always a bit of a party for him. And so he would want to make, you know, make up a song about whatever we were cooking. He would want to waltz me down the hallway and waltz me back as singing about it. He was just always so joyful about the preparation. And he's still that way. <laughs> you know, he'll phone me, guess what I'm making tonight for <laughs> for dinner. And uh, and it's, it's just, uh, I think that we want to create an atmosphere that is, is is really something that the whole family enjoys and that we can engage in in wonderful uh, conversation with our children around the dinner table and and that these are times you know also creating traditions around food uh, is is just so special for kids and and engages them in a really positive way so there's lots of things that we as parents can do Oh, and and you talk about this in, in the book as well. I'm thinking right now when it's hard <clears throat> to get together with family members and, and others, so many people have been telling me about how they get together for a Zoom cooking experience and they decide in advance what they're going to make so that everybody's got the ingredients and they cook together. I just think that's awesome. so sweet. So um, I haven't done that yet with anybody, although I am taking an Ayurveda course and we did have to cook on Saturday and we were told that we were supposed to have this as a meditative experience (laughs) and really bless the food all the way through. So that's probably a good idea, too. So what about this whole idea of family meal times? You know, there was a time in history when that was just a given, and now it seems a lot less so. Can we get by without it? Do we need to try to reinstate it as much as we can? Yeah, so we have a whole, we think family dinners are so important that we have a whole chapter on it in the book. And studies have shown that children who participate in regular family meals um, do well in so many different realms, from academic performance to reduced incidence of high-risk behaviors like smoking and alcohol and drug abuse, um, and lower rates of anxiety and depression. The other interesting thing that I found is that kids who participate in family meals have a greater sense of family connectedness and 
it's certainly about the food, but it's also a place where you sort of share values and family stories and traditions. Um, and kids want to know about these things. I think you can also model a lot of behavior in terms of, you know, just conversations and how to sort of stay connected. I think during this time where everybody is sort of staying at home more often, I think there has been a resurgence of the family meal and even not just at dinner time, but even, you know, the kids are at home, the parents are at home often working. And so you're also seeing families have breakfast and lunch and um, snacks together. So I think that family meals are critical. Um, it's really a time to connect with everyone in the home and, you know, I think just as with plant-based meals, it's important to start at a pace that seems reasonable. So if you're a family that never has family meals together, make a commitment to do it once a week and then kind of expand from there. Um, and in the book, we talk about, you know, the average family spends, I think it's in the United States, 17 or 18 minutes of dinner. And I think it's a, our job as parents to create a time where those 17, 18 minutes are just a safe haven where you can, you know, just kind of just connect with family and disconnect from electronics and all this, all that's going on in the world. <laughs> and how about treats? What are they and where do we put them? Um, you know, I, I think, I think we have to be careful to not to be overly restrictive uh, with our kids because treats are around. They're around for all sorts of special occasions. They're around at school, they're at friends' homes. And if we get overly rigid uh, uh, about treats, I think, again, as, as Reshma said, it can, it can backfire. But my approach was always in my home to make... Um, uh, really healthy vegan versions of favorite treats. So, you know, my popsicles were made of fruit and, you know, uh, uh, whatever kind of non-dairy milk. Uh, my, uh, you know, I make turtles and my caramel is uh, either pine nuts or cashew butter and dates. And, and, and so I do all kinds of really fun uh, cookies and, and treats that, that don't have bad things, black bean brownies. We have chickpea peanut butter uh, cookies in the book. Are they peanut butter, Reshma? Yeah. yeah, they're peanut butter. And yeah, and and so there are all kinds of really wonderful treats that you can make that aren't necessarily they, that. Actually, I should take a more, more positive approach that actually contribute significantly to the nutrient intake and and the enjoyment of of food. And, uh, and so that would be my, you know, preference. And then once in a while, when kids are exposed to uh, less healthy treats, it's not a big deal. You don't, I, I wouldn't get uh, overly uh, concerned about it. It's a once in a while thing. Yeah. Oh, that, that's just so sane and lovely. Just kind of makes you want to have a big old family dinner right now. Yeah. So the book, everybody, is Nourish. And these wonderful authors, Dr. Reshma Shah and Brenda Davis. And just in our last couple of minutes, Dr. Shah, can you just give us your take on where we are right now with COVID and what we ought to be doing to stay healthy and sane in the bargain? Yeah. And just a disclaimer, I'm not a COVID expert, but just as a pediatrician, I would say, I think that sometimes people are looking for the fancy solutions, but it's really the simple things that we've been hearing from our infectious disease and public health experts in terms of trying to maintain social distance, wearing a mask when you're not able to do so, and really just being thoughtful. Um, I think, you know, hearing these stories about people um, not being cautious and not taking the appropriate measures, I think it just means we're going to be in it for the long run. Um, my, I would really love to see us be able to find a safe way for kids to start back at school. Um, I think they need to be with their peers. And it's, it's remarkable to think that, you know, my son, I think that he'll be out of school for almost a year by the time this is all said and done. So the more that we can work together as a community and as a nation to keep one another safe, um, I think that's the sort of only way out of this um, until we have a reliable and accessible vaccine available to us. And a day at a time, we will get through this. Yes. So, uh, Brenda, would you like to have the last word on uh, nourish healthy kids or a healthy life? <laughs> well, I, you know, the only thing that I would like to say to conclude is just that uh, I, I am so grateful for parents that are um, having the courage to, to, uh, 
to feed their families in a way that is so supportive to health, to the environment, and to animals. And and uh, I'm um, I encourage people not to uh, you know to to be overly concerned about nutrients. It really isn't that difficult, and it is actually getting easier uh, as we go because there's so many more foods available that are fortified and so forth. Way easier than it was back uh, 30 years ago. So go forth joyfully and um, you will be uh, well rewarded for raising your children this way in the long run. Ah, oh, so true. And and as I think um, you both said earlier, the, the kids have already got this within them. Kids are born <laughs> sure kind. And so if you can take your kids to a farm animal sanctuary, or if that's absolutely impossible, you know, even a petting zoo, which I don't really believe in as an animal rights person, but on the other hand, so that a young human can really know, oh, this this goat, this calf, this lamb is just like my dog or my cat and sweet and cuddly and I love them too. So thank you both so very much. Everybody, if you have kids, if you know a kid, get yourself a copy of Nourish, read it cover to cover and then cook some of the fabulous recipes. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Unity Online Radio for hosting us. And thanks oh so very much to my beautiful guests today and to everyone listening. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to ignite your best life and illuminate the world? I'm Stephanie James. I'm a motivational speaker, transformation coach, and psychotherapist. And what lights me up is helping people just like you create the greatest versions of themselves. On my podcast, Igniting the Spark, I will help you ignite your joy and reach new heights in your personal and professional life. Join me for some incredible conversations with authors, spiritual teachers, and other influential thought leaders to help guide you on your way. If you are ready to stop playing small, join me for Igniting the Spark, on the mindbodyspirit.fm network or wherever you get your podcasts and ignite your best life.